Welcome to Max Volume, where deliver loud takes at soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 72. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like Josh Brolin's jaw structure, Diane Lane's longevity, and how Die Hard with a Vengeance is the greatest third installment of an action movie franchise. No quote too minor, no side plot too small. It is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observations. My world has been flipped upside down, people. Snow is hot. Bananas are purple. Nicolas Cage has a consistent rock-steady career. Nothing makes sense, and my movie identity kind of has been shattered into these tiny kernels of unpopped movie theater popcorn. Last night, I watched what I thought was one of my all-time top five favorite movies, Charlie Kaufman's Schenectady, New York, and I watched it. And the first time I watched it, I watched it in my mid-20s, and on my first viewing, it really resonated with me. It was brutal and uncomfortable and unflinching about the mental games we kind of play inside our own minds. It made me evaluate how much of reality is projection-based on what our minds think versus what's actually going on. And I felt proud to be a supporter of this little kind of indie movie that bombed in the theaters. I think it made like $4 million on a $20 million budget. And, you know, few people saw it. And I was one of the chosen ones who kind of had found their movie, you know, found their niche. And then I watched it last night at 34 years old. And my God, what a dumpster fire of a film. It's just, it's, it's so embarrassing. It's, it's hipster catnip of being kind of overly complicated, unnecessarily surreal, and garden variety philosophical. I was embarrassed that I'd kind of trumpeted this film as an all-timer less than a decade ago. I think I even posted on like Facebook like five, six days ago that it was a top five movie in mine, and it's not now, because <laughs> I could hardly get through the movie today. I mean, it was, I mean, yesterday, it was brutal. And it just shows, I mean, time makes fools of us all, I guess. And this existential crisis moment got me into a conversation with my dear friend, John Smith, about our top 10, top 25 top 20 kind of list of movies. And he said to me deadpan, because I, I didn't realize this, but he's like, your list of top 10 movies is 85 selections long. And after fighting the initial lizard brain desire to argue, you know, no, I'm not, or, you know, I'm not tired when you're a little kid, but you really need a nap. You know, I realized he was correct. I needed a nap that the statement was right. I would, I would always say with him like, oh, this new movie, you got to see it. You know, it's top 10, top 25 without realizing, you know, (laughs) there's 98 movies in this top 10 list. Cinematically, I fall in love easily and often, and usually with the last thing I see. It's why I'm kind of such a movie vacuum. Like, who doesn't want to be swept off their feet six times a week and twice on Sundays? It's the perfect relationship, and I'll never apologize for swooning over garbage movies. Like, I love, like, Virtuosity, Crank, She's the Man, Demolition Man, Deep Blue Sea, the Truth About Cats and Dogs, What Women Want, The Beach, Not Another Teen Movie. Like, I love garbage. I really do. And they bring joy. So who cares if there's a plot holes or trash acting performances? Like, who really cares? It's not like, you know, someone's going to come down and say your selection was wrong. It doesn't matter. But it did lead me to an interesting question. What is my actual top 10 all-time movie list? 
that sentence initially sent my mind into this weird fight or flight kind of panic mode. I could feel like stress in my stress in my traps, my like head kind of started to get tight. I could feel like, you know, the, my brain coursing and just a nervousness, which is insane because it's movies, it's stories, it's my life's joy. And there's no wrong answers. You know what I mean? I could say anything. I could say, how are the ducks I want to do? I mean, who cares? It's just, it's subjective and personal. But you instantly start thinking about what movies you might forget. Like, oh, I can't forget this movie. Or what if someone calls me out for not liking that movie? Will people judge if my list is too basic? What if it's too obscure? What if I become the world's greatest movie critic, like of all time, and this list comes back to like bite me in the butt and like kick me out of the industry? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, but that's such a weird thought to have. It's like, let's get there first. <laughs> you know, it's like I have like three people listening to a podcast and I'm worried about this taking me down because I don't know, I rank Gladiator too high. I mean, what does it matter? <laughs> then you breathe, you laugh at the gymnastics your brain is doing, and you make the exercise fun. Because that's all that any of this is. That's why I'm doing this. It's really why I enjoy this. If you can tell, I'm smiling through this. Uh, my voice is like through a smile. I think you can tell when like voices are coming through smiles. You can just tell. And it's an exercise in what moves me. And yes, I've been listening to a bunch of philosophical podcasts like the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. And you bet I'm watching colorful, thought-provoking shows like the Midnight Gospel and Tuca and Birdie. So being the selection cup for what's right in front of me. I'm absorbing these kind of positive vibes and it's definitely influencing my thought process, but I dig it. And maybe tomorrow I'll get an annealism and I'll, you know, dress in all black and paint my nails and listen to My Chemical Romance and come up with like a 10 top 10 list that's has like the crow and spawn in it. And you know, that'll be fun too. <laughs> but while this positivity, I have a positivity train going right now. So why don't I keep it on the rainbow colored tracks? So here we go. So number 10, I'm going Dave. It's a 1993 Kevin Klein feel-good movie about a president look-alike who actually takes the office when the real president secretly has a stroke. It's uplifting. It gives you this super kind of positive view on how noble politics can be. Imagine West Wing in a lighthearted kind of romantic comedy role. The score is just goosebump-inducing. Kevin Klein is his perfect combination of noble, funny, kind, and commanding. He would have been like a great 1940s to 1960s movie star. There's something very kind of Cary Grant about him. You know, there's just like a unspoken nobility, but he's also like someone who could be your friend or you could have a beer with. And I never turn it off when it's on. Ving Rhames is hilarious. a no-nonsense bodyguard. Sigourney Weaver is actually really charming as the first lady. And there's a lot of good montages. I like a good montage. And there's like three or four excellent montages in this movie. It's great 90s flick, totally in my wheelhouse. My fam- my whole family likes it too, so maybe it's just me kind of like, oh, we all liked it, and you know, it reminds me of growing up and before politics was all crappy. You know, <laughs> This was like the Clinton positivity era, so this was good stuff. Number nine, I got 2000's Almost Famous. Perfect coming-of-age story. Best glimpse at the 70s rock and roll lifestyle from the director who actually lived the story, which is pretty crazy. Uh, It's a high school reporter who gets to follow rock gods uh, in his band Stillwater around the country as they rise to popularity. It's based on director Cameron Crowe's real life experience, which is like the coolest thing ever. Uh, At a young age, I think he was 15 or 16, he got to travel around with Led Zeppelin in the 70s, like my God. Uh, Every character is well-rounded and written with warmth because you can tell, I mean, they're based on people that he interacted with. Best Kate Hudson performance ever has Penny Lane, you know, the groupie with a heart of gold. Best Billy Crudup performance, and it makes you wonder why he didn't go on to be an A-lister. He was, you know, uh, God, what's his name? Oh, man, this is going to bother me now. 
He was, hold on, Stallings, Stallings. He was Russell Hammond. There we go. Who was like, you know, the lead guitarist for Stillwater. And you really wonder why he wasn't an A-list celebrity after this. Like, he's so good. He's just so relatable, but so like rock star and cool. I just don't get it. I mean, he was good in Watchmen too, but that's pretty much it. Like, otherwise, he was in a good Prefontaine movie, I think, too. But that's it. And kind of disappointing. Oh, and a cherry on top for this movie is uh, the strongest Philip Seymour Hoffman heat check in history. He's like in four scenes for 10 minutes, and he has about 39 profound quotes. And it's just spellbinding to watch. He's just, you know, overweight, but arrogant and fun. And he's like chugging cough syrup and typing and, you know, talking about life while smoking a pack of cigarettes. Just love it. Love this movie. Number eight, I got The Social Network, 2010 movie that has my dream lineup. Uh, of people behind the scenes. You had David Fincher directing, Aaron Sorkin's Rapid Fire, Smartest Person in the Room dialogue, and Trent Reznor's Pitch Perfect musical score. Trent Reznor was the lead guy for Nine Inch Nails, but he does a ton of movies now. And this was his best one. Like normal movies have scripts that are 80 to 100 pages, give or take, and including all actions. Sorkin's for this movie was 160 pages. So, and the movie is still just under two hours long. And it's just, it's all dialogue. There's not much action. So everyone is on their motor mouth game here. Everyone's just spitting fire. Like this, this is like, I'm trying to think who's a fast, who's a really fast rapper. This is like Eminem. Like this is the Eminem of movies where it's like the lyrics are fire and they're spitting out really fast. I like that. There we go. Sorkin's like the Eminem of the cinema industry. And Jesse Eisenberg uh, in, as Mark, Mark, as Mark Zuckerberg. Hold on, let me try this again. <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg is Mark Zuckerberg. There we go in just his greatest role of all time smug confrontational brilliant i don't think anyone else could have done that you know i mean he just has this condescending little beady eyed look to him you just want to punch him in the face but you know he's right and army hammer as the winklevoss twins is the best use of cgi i've ever witnessed like i'm still convinced he has a twin living in a basement somewhere that we just don't know about how is that not two people like i just it blows my mind and fincher just flexing his directing muscles but in a restrained kind of calm way which is rare and beautiful to watch over and over. Because this isn't Seven. This isn't Mindhunter. It's not Fight Club or Zodiac or House of Cards, which are kind of these in-your-face kind of visceral movies. This is subdued. And it's something I never knew I wanted from him. But, like, he does do the, the crew rowing scene where he just flexes. He's like, look at me and all my, you know, visual. I used to direct music videos kind of vibe. That scene's cool, too. But it's just spliced in. Like, the rest of it's understated, which is awesome. Number seven, kind of the wild card of the group. I'm unashamedly going Paddington 2. Yes, it's a movie about a CGI bear in London using children's book uh, intellectual property, but it's charming and well thought out. And the visuals alone would make the movie watchable. The, whatever those like Ruth Ginsburg machines are, you know, where you like hit a lever and then a balloon pops and then a chicken clucks and then like, you know, something else get knocked over. They do a lot of that stuff and it's just fun to watch. And you can watch this movie on mute, honestly, because it's just brightly colored, super, you kind of get the general gist of what's going on, but it's not on mute. And you get to experience meaningful dialogue about how being kind to others is kind of the ultimate truth. And being uh, true to yourself is kind of the life affirming kind of uh, the life affirming best way to live. And it's inspiring and it makes you want to wear a red hat and eat marmalade sandwiches with your nearest and dearest friends and family. So who doesn't want that? So like watch it and I promise you, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll be rooting out loud for a CGI teddy bear in a raincoat 
Just watch, like just watch it. I promise you. I'm not doing that just to like for shock value. This is my list. And like I said, there's three people on here, so who cares? Number six, easy one, uh, 1990s Martin Scorsese masterpiece going Goodfellas. Perfect gangster movie from the Ray, Ray Liotta voiceover that knows every detail of mob life to Joe Pesci being the most charming psycho killer in cinematic history. And there's so many iconic scenes from the like, how my funny rant or to his first, to uh, Henry Hill's first date with Karen where they're going through the back alley entrance and like shaking everyone's hand and bribing everyone. There's a helicopter paranoia sequence. It's all wizardry. I mean, Scorsese is just a king at this. And there's about nine more scenes that you can gush, gush about. So to put in perspective, most of my pods are 17 to 25 minutes long. And my Goodfellas pod was an hour long. And it's just it's just that freaking delicious. And you can just talk about, you know, I could talk about the uh, Henry and Karen date scene for 25 minutes, honestly. So, oh, and the opening scene when he's parking Cadillacs when he's like 13. Like, my God, what a masterclass in creating an enticing world for your audience. Like, shout out Scorsese. I, I couldn't go without a Scorsese film in here. I kind of, like, to perspective of, of how I thought about this stuff, I was like, who are my favorite directors? What's my favorite movie of theirs? And then I kind of spiraled from there. I was like, okay, this actor was in this. And then that actor worked with this actor who won this, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but I definitely went director first. And Scorsese, I had to have a Scorsese movie in there. If not this, it would probably be probably Wolf of Wall Street, probably the other one. Number five is Heat. Oh, now I want Wolf of Wall Street in here. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, well, yeah. No, Wall Street's like number 13, 14. But uh, number five is Heat, 1995, Michael Mann, Cops versus Rappers, Perfection. It, was, it came out in theaters on my birthday when I was 10 years old. So shout out December 15th. And any woman, man, or child at some point fantasizes what it would be like to take down a bank with assault rifles. You just do. You just look at it and be like, okay, that teller looks a little weak. You know what I mean? Like the guard isn't really looking or he doesn't have a gun. How would I do this? Turn the cameras away. Would I use EMP? You know, you just kind of get to thinking. It's just a fun thing to do. And this is the best version of that daydream. Plus you got Al Pacino screaming random things for two plus hours and bulging his eyes in between gunfights and philosophical diner discussions. It just hits everything you would ever want from the man. Like, he's just fantastic. I heard he improvised a lot of the lines and, like, people didn't know how to respond. So when they're looking confused or horrified at Al Pacino, that's actually the actor being like, what are you doing, man? You're just being crazy. Because Al Pacino, he's, he's best when he's crazy. I mean, he is just, those eyes, man, when he, like, bulges them out, I don't think anyone does it better. And on the other side, you got the coolest De Niro performance ever. I don't like the Godfather movies. They drag. They're self-important. The dialogue stinks. Like, get over yourselves, everyone who likes the Godfather, whatever. But in this movie, De Niro with his sharp goatee, silver suits, and cold demeanor and professionalism, he's just the baddest dude on the planet. I mean, he's willing to walk away from anything in 30 seconds flat. He doesn't even have furniture in his apartment. That's how cool he is. He doesn't even need a couch. He's like, you know what? I could manifest a chair with my mind if I need to. So that's how cool he is. Neil McCulley. Oh, and the movie has ponytailed gambling addicted Val Kilmer as his third lead. And that's just, I mean, that those are things that are near and dear to my heart. Oh, and it's the coolest LA movie ever. Michael Mann's set pieces should be studied at film schools. And I'm sure they are. I mean, I guess the one that comes close is collateral, but that's another Michael Mann movie that's basically a rip on this. So, you know, I mean, nice try, Michael Mann, but you're one and two. I guess he really loves LA. I would, I'm guessing he lives in LA. And I don't know. I've just never seen it 
depicted this way. It's kind of just cold and calculating. Number four, Predator. Perfect action movie. Prime Arnold and Carl Weathers. No love story. No side plots. Just a grand old tale about machine gun packing, vein popping, team of the best of the best going into the jungle and battling a perfect killing machine of an alien who hunts man for sport for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, why does he come down here to just skin men alive? He's like nine feet tall and has like tech way above us. I guess it's like hunting deer though. So I guess that's fine. And it's like us going to, you know, a deer camp is like for his uh, spaceship. It's like, you know, that same kind of travel. So it works, I guess. Fine. Cool one-liners. Best jungle movie of all time. You can kind of just feel the sweaty kind of ominousness of it all. It's violent. It's creepy. It's funny too. Like there's some good lines, but it's not over the top. Well, yes, it is over the top, but in a, in just a glorious self-aware way, you know, when like Arnold and Carl Weathers are just, you know, grabbing hands and just flexing. Oh my God. You know, it's just adrenaline. It's, it's, it's adrenaline on tap. Plus one of the best alien creature creations in cinematic history, those mandibles on the face, those, you know, zombie dreadlock kind of things. My God. So I did a three and a half hour podcast on Predator with my buddy Mo. I could have gone on for five more hours. It's that engaging, even when you've seen it 73 times. So just had to be up here. You know, I mean, it's just too good. You need, and plus I needed my one like classic, just all action movie. Because this is like picking your top 10 restaurants. If you think about it, probably five of them are steakhouses, but you want to, you want to switch it up. You want variety. You know what I mean? If I pick five 80s action movies it'd be boring you know i mean even though die hard rules and lethal weapon rocks but like you can't be all in the same you got to have a wide variety but then you think to yourself it's like but what if they all you know like lethal weapon should be on here or oh man die hard really was that good or commando should be somewhere in this top 10 but no no listen brain you know i mean stop playing tricks on me all right i'm gonna pick what i feel and i i feel predator and predator alone in the 80s movies Number three, Dark Knight. I don't see movies multiple times in theaters. I do one viewing and kind of just let it wash over me. You know what I mean? Just like let it, let it envelop me. This is my experience. This is my emotional connection to this film. And then I leave it. You know what I mean? That's it. You know, we had this moment and then it's gone and it will never be rehashed again. And that's just how it always been, except once. I saw this movie six times in theaters in I think it was July of 2008. And with anyone who was willing to go with me, I just had to go. I mean, I was like, come like, come on, come on. I need, I need another hit. It set my skin on fire. Like Heath Ledger's Joker is the most memorable on-screen character of all time. He's sadistic. He's brilliantly organized the idea of chaos into this uh, like absurd kind of uh, like war situation in Gotham. And his dialogue is so philosophically profound for a dude in cracking clown makeup that you just want to sit in a warm bath and contemplate your life. I mean, it's just like, how did they think of this? And who, like, how did they decide that this character could be, you know, this wild, this unpredictable with no backstory that he's making up, you know, as he goes along. And I mean, I've never seen anything even remotely like this on screen. I mean, even since, you know, people try to recreate. I don't think anyone's trying to even, like, come close to recreate. Can you, I can't think of anything. And, like, the first bank high scene where he has his men killing each other one by one is intoxicating. The pencil trick, the interrogation, interrogation scene, hyena laughter. Like, you just can't, you just can't phase him. Uh, the, nurse out, the nurse outfit explosion. He's the most charismatic person I've ever seen on screen. And the movie itself 
is brilliant as well. Even though I could just I could just talk about the Joker. Like my number one movie is the Joker, just the character, not the movie, just Joker. <laughs> but the movie's really good too. Like it gives the realistic internal struggles of Bruce Wayne, gives Alfred like real gravitas and heart. Killing off a major love interest midway through uh, the film was a brilliant decision. And the creation of Harvey Dent was pretty masterful too. I just like, you know, the gasoline scene and kind of how he could have turned insane. Uh, like it was the most realistic portrayal of how he became that way. Plus Hans Zimmer uh, quickens your heart rate with that score. Just a massive, and it's just masterful. And Christopher Nolan, this is his best movie. And, you know, he's kind of our generation's Kubrick. And I really do love his movies. Shout out The Prestige. And oh, see, my dogs like The Prestige too. Or a dog outside, either one. <laughs> But uh, I haven't seen Tenet yet, but I hear it's confusing and you can't really hear anything. But I mean, I'll still enjoy it. But this is the best, this is the best kind of combination of no one's abilities. Because it was light, too. You cared about the characters. There was some fun to it. There were some good jokes. And like, the movie kept going. And I love Sean Fennessy of The Big Picture said the movie would be the best movie of all time if the movie ended right when the Joker was leaving the MCU in the back of that cop's car and he's waving his head around in the back seat like a dog, you know, kind of waving their head in the breeze. And like, you could think like, oh man, chaos could win. And that's how it ended. Oh my God. Like that gives me chills every time. Cause that, the movie was like an hour 45 in at that point. And that would have been, it might, it would probably be number one at that point. Like I get chills just thinking about it right now because from the scene where he takes all the trucks to try to hijack Harvey Dent kind of on the highway, to that last scene, I mean, to that scene with him at, with the title out the window, that's probably the best 45, 50 minute stretch in any movie ever. So, oh, I love it. Oh, God, it's so good. <laughs> All right, moving on. Number two, I got Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Manic, it's hyperactive, it's funny. It's comic book movie before comic book movies. And it's some of the best uh, fight scenes I've ever seen mixed with video game lore and the best rock soundtrack of all time. So fast, so funny, so silly, absurdist, while also dealing with real issues of growing up, relationship strife, and dealing with your problems head on. One of the funniest movies I've ever seen, too. Like, I'll say, Bread Makes You Fat, like, at least once a week. Uh, the Vegan Police, just, it was so good. And just, like, all the quippy one-liners. It's almost, I'm trying to think what it was like. It's, like, kind of, it's like Parks and Rec, but, like, a little darker and angstier, basically. And you also have top-level karate-based action scenes that hold up against $100 million budget films. And like I said, the music is bananas. You truly get the feeling of the garage band kind of pop-punk uh, feel from this movie. Endlessly rewatchable. I have a giant tattoo of it on my right elbow. And number one, easiest pick of them all, Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne and his wasted life in prison made for the most inspiring film of all time. His relationship with Red is just so memorable. Morgan Freeman's calming voiceover. Uh, just hearing Morgan Freeman preach about hope and lamenting about institutionalization is kind of word art at its finest. The whole sepia tone period piece of it all made you think deeply about your life and what's valuable to you. And, you know, if a movie gets you thinking like that, you know what I mean? It's done its job. And it's also an excellent prison movie from the fights to how to smuggle things in to the relationships people form behind bars and how systems can crush the human spirit. And also the best unexpected prison break movie of all time. Like, I, I don't think anyone saw the prison break coming, you know, 20 years in. Spoiler alert, you know, 25 years later, if you haven't seen it. And it's the number one movie on most all-time lists for a reason. 
It's that profound and glorious. And I'm very aware of how basic a choice this is, but it's the one that feels true to me. So there you have it, my definitive list of all-time top 10 movies. Until I watch the next Hulu release and put it on a pedestal. Or if I rewatch one of these and have another Schenectady, New York mental crisis. And oh my, oh man, okay, that's embarrassing. I forgot Pulp Fiction. I needed to put a Tarantino movie on here and I had it. Okay. I'm just realizing this right now. Um, So where would I put it and what would I take out? I'd probably take out, I'd take out Almost Famous and put Pulp Fiction instead. So that's that's on the fly. You heard it here. I'm switching it. Almost Famous goes to 11 and Pulp Fiction goes in at nine. So there you go. But for now, this is the list after that change. So enjoy. (laughs) Later.